This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Loads of stuff happening in politics this week, not least on Brexit, but until we actually know what's going to happen, there seems little point in actually discussing it. So we're going to try and touch on some other things which are happening in politics right now. We'll be asking what on earth is going on in Syria. We're asking what on earth is John McDonnell up to and what on earth is going to happen as and when we get a general election. I'm delighted to be joined by a stellar panel uh, on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Lucy Fisher, the defence correspondent on The Times, will try and explain what is going on in Syria. Henry Zeffman, political correspondent for The Times, will try to explain what is going on in the Labour Party, in particular what the Shadow Chancellor is up to. But first, former pollster for Theresa May when she was in Downing Street, this is James Johnson. Are you working class? Are you in the North or the Midlands? Are you a mum? Did you vote leave but are a little bit bored of Brexit? If so, then the Tory love bomb campaign is coming for you. That's the group that Number 10 thinks is key to this election. And everything Number 10 does, every message, every policy, between now and that election day, will be with those people in mind. For a whole minute when you were reading that, I suddenly thought Boris Johnson's going after bored housewives, but it's a slightly different uh, <laughs> a slightly different strategy. He's been doing that for some time. Um, how do you, as a pollster, establish that those are the people that Boris Johnson or political parties going after? So basically, the way that political parties tend to understand voters is that they do something called a segmentation, which is basically they sort of ask lots of attitudinal questions, they compare all the demographic information they've got on voters, and then come out with sort of broad groups and clusters of voters. And they'll work out from that actually how those voters voted, um, what their issues and interests are, and which are most important in the seats they really need to win. So when I was um, doing the polling, um, the group that we found uh, most important, the same group that number 10 are now prioritising um, was this group that we called the Conservative Considerers. And you often end up with silly names for these segments, by the way. So we had new Conservative supporters, we had Labour's left, um, uh, and these were the Conservative Considerers, these people that were working class, uh, tended to be in northern, uh, north, north or the Midlands. They actually skew 60% to 40% female to male, so more more ma- more female than, than male. They cared about, they liked that they voted leave, but they cared more about public services than Brexit. And this, this was the sort of the key group group that the Conservatives needed to win to get seats like Halifax, to get seats like Darlington, to get seats like Wakefield. And they're going to be the people that uh, that the Conservatives are thinking about from, from now to that election. And that sort of explains the slightly schizophrenic Queen's speech that we had on Monday, which was partly, let's deliver Brexit, get on with Brexit, and then a quite centrist, almost left-wing approach to public services, lots of money for the mm. NHS, for schools, the environment sort of sneaking in as well is quite, in fact, 
um, Boris Johnson's called the Environment Bill is the, the huge star of the legislative program, and that's so that's trying to ride those two horses basically. Definitely, and uh, you can work out from that. You know, you can work out a lot of what the Conservatives were doing in their manifesto, as well as what they did in the Queen's speech by the priorities of that of that voter group. So, crime is a really big issue, and you know there were six bills on crime. Um, immigration is a big issue. There was an immigration bill. Um, there was an employment bill. Um, there's and and you know the environment that you mentioned as well. This group sees everything in terms of fairness. They feel like they work really hard day in day out, put in all the hours, but they don't get rewarded while other people seem to. Um, and they feel like those other people are perhaps people claiming benefits or people dodging tax or rich corporations, um, you know, not paying their way or playing by the rules. So expect to see more of those kind of policies. And yes, that sort of more state interventionist style um, type of policy in the Conservative manifesto. One of the things that uh, struck me, looking back through, I think it was some YouGov polling, but it's probably true of all all of the polls is is when you ask what are the issue you know the big issues facing the country. If you divide it on Remain Leave, you get quite different answers. Remain is much more concerned about public services and the environment and that sort of thing than Leavers. Is there a risk that if Boris Johnson starts banging on about climate change too much, he ends up alienating the people he thinks he's already got in the bag on, but because he's delivering Brexit. So I so, so my reading of it is that actually there are much more though you're right you know there are different levels of degrees of of interest in these different issues that there is actually more consensus between remainers and leavers than a lot of people make out. And I think that an environment is a great example. You know when I used to do when I, well when I still do focus groups and go to remain areas and leave areas one common strand of unity is that they all really like David Attenborough and think that plastic is bad. Um, and the same applies uh, actually even on issues like immigration, which you think are very divisive. Although the message is different and the way people talk about it is different, ultimately there is actually quite a bit of agreement that actually, you know, maybe we should have some level of control over this and it should be done positively on a skills basis. So there are more areas of, of, of unity than division. And the biggest one of all is the NHS. And you can see how centrally the Conservatives are putting that into their uh, election messaging. Um, because that is one that reaches across the divide. So I think there are more areas in common. It's just that with Brexit in the way, it's very hard to, to get to them. Henry, do you think the Tories can ever win on the NHS? The best they can do is try and neutralise, isn't it, by throwing loads of money at it? Well, I know, I think that there was a view under, and James will, of course, know much better than me about this, there was a view under Theresa May that perhaps it was better to just leave the NHS because you couldn't hope to take Labour on on that turf. Uh, clearly Boris Johnson thinks you can take Labour on on all sorts of uh, parts of its natural turf. I mean, the one thing that I find a bit peculiar listening to what James just said is that I remember a general election where the Conservative Party offered that pitch, uh, where they said they weren't the party anymore of untrammeled free markets, where they you know, would take on so-called benefit scroungers and tax dodgers alike. And it was only about two years ago. Uh, <laughs> and I followed Theresa May to Darlington and to Derby and to all sorts of parts of the country that afterwards I thought no Tory leader would ever dare to go to again. But it seems Boris Johnson is willing to take the same gamble. And yes, the polls look pretty good for Boris Johnson. And yes, Jeremy Corbyn has had two more years of exposure to the British public and so on. But I do just find it a bit strange that the Conservative Party looked at the 2017 election by all measures a disaster for them. Uh, arguably, you know, the, the cause of why the UK hasn't left the EU now and have gone, OK, we're going to do the same again, but with a different leader who's posher and hope <laughs> that the working class parts of the country, which have never voted Tory before because of such an ingrained cultural aversion to Conservatives, will now come over for Alexander Feffel or Boris de Feffel Johnson rather than Theresa May, the relatively classless daughter of a vicar. I, I, and I'm entirely willing to believe that it might work, but I do think it's strange and I do think we ought to be more mindful of the fact this is basically the 2017 strategy on speed. Lucy, what do you think? Because obviously you covered the, before you, 
move to defence. You've covered the 2017 election. Yeah. I, I actually think there's too much emphasis put on class. I think it's more to do with ingrained personality. Theresa May faltered. She always looked isolated. You know, it was her lack of club ability. She didn't have friends. She didn't have allies. She sort of only had her husband, Philip May, and, and she always appeared a little bit sort of sad to me. Whereas Boris Johnson, you know, love him or loathe him, and many people do loathe him. You know, he, he's got the gift of the gab, the swagger, the charisma. He's got the very attractive sort of, you know, 30-something girlfriend. You know, I think that there's a lot of people, my sort of, if I, if I had to sort of make a prediction, I think that there will be shy conservatives who don't necessarily like admitting at Islington dinner parties, but sort of a bit impressed by Boris and sort of snigger at his jokes and his sort of bombastic polysyllabic one-liners. Um, I, I, that's just that's just the sense I have. I, but I do, I do think it's personality and the fact he presents as a winner um, more than the fact that he's posh and, and Theresa May was merely middle class. To, to what extent, I've had this sort of slight theory, James, that part of the problem Theresa May had, but also the problem that Ed Miliband had, is it was just a bit odd. They weren't like people that normal people came across. Ed Miliband liked watching baseball in the middle of the night and doing Rubik's Cubes and having Marxist <laughs> chats or sitting on the knee of Tony Benn as a child. He was so far removed. Whereas most people have met someone like David Cameron, even if he's a posh prat at the school gate or, you know, at the village fair or whatever it is. They're sort of aware that posh people like that exist and he seemed normal-ish. Is that the sort of impression that people have of Boris? Uh, well, I mean, this—I mean, you know, this revisiting the 2017 election for, for me is, is very painful because because <laughs> uh, so, you, you know the, the, the great the great sort of you know despair about it was that Theresa May was a very very different person in private to the one she was on the campaign trail and the way that that campaign was designed and uh, you know they sort of you know re, thought they could rehash the 2015 playbook uh, was, was we should we should point out her. that you did not work on the 2017 no, campaign. No, indeed, for, I was a sad reasons. spectator. <laughs> um, I do think I do think Boris's personality probably helps. But I think fundamentally, this question um, that Henry raises about, you know, can you win these people will come down to whether how people feel the Tories will perform on public services. I think that's I think that's the essential key. And that was the thing that really unwound Conservatives in 2017. I, I ran the sort of post-mortem into it afterwards. And the thing that we found was it wasn't so much personality. It wasn't so much uh, Brexit. It was this idea that the Conservatives could not be trusted on the NHS, could not be trusted on social care, could not be trusted on free school meals, could not be trusted on fox hunting. So it, it's it got feels, a long list of things. It, it is a very yeah, long list to try to address. And you know, this is the challenge the Conservatives now face. If they can change that brand on public services, then they do have a shot at winning those people. But you know, a five-week, six-week election campaign is a very short amount of time to change an entire brand. And just before we move on, Henry, but doesn't all of this really hang on whether what happens with Brexit? I know that's it's a bit hard to say, but if later this week Boris Johnson gets a deal and the Commons vote for it, we leave on October the thirty-first. Does he become an unstoppable force? And if not, does the Brexit party eat into him and the whole thing collapses anyway? Well, I can see the case for him becoming an unstoppable force if he delivers Brexit by October the 31st. He will show that he has incredible political skills which eluded Theresa May and which many people thought eluded him in this instance, at least. But a thought, I mean, I'd be interested in what James thinks about this. If one of the most compelling reasons for people to vote for Boris Johnson in this imminent election is that he will deliver Brexit, whereas the Labour Party won't or will hold a referendum. How does that calculation change if he has already delivered Brexit? Because don't you then, and, and I take your point that public services is the sort of clincher, but isn't the thing which gets those voters even considering voting Conservative that the Conservative Party will deliver Brexit? If they've already delivered Brexit, then don't you lose the sort of first 
uh, crumb on the on the on the sort of I don't know what that metaphor is, but Hansel and Gretel or something. It's not quite, I, I'm not. I'm really not sure that's what I mean. But don't you lose the sort of first step of the way? If Boris Johnson has already secured Brexit, don't voters in say Bishop Auckland or you know, Dudley or whatever the sort of semi-apocryphal seats are? Don't they say, well, thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate that, and now we're going to vote for the party which is going actually, to do best by public services. Actually, in the same way the economy was growing in '97, and people thought, well, that's all right now, we're out of the woods, we can vote yeah. for this guy we don't know, and the same thing happened in 2010. Or to use a, an analogy which Boris Johnson will find quite compelling, Winston Churchill was not rewarded for winning the war, yep. Clement Attlee <laughs> was offered the chance to <laughs> deliver the peace. So back in the, the heady days of uh, of my time in number 10, when we, we thought we might actually... You deliver, had some heady days. <laughs> when we thought we might actually deliver Brexit by March 29th, this was actually one of the questions um, that I was most worried about, because, the, you know, you, you, you yeah, sure, you don't... you Voters do not reward you for what you've done. They're always looking for the next thing. And I think that... that, that, that uh, uh, dynamic is absolutely is absolutely the key one because at the moment the Conservatives have a distinguishing factor with the, with Labour on public services. They're able to say vote for us, get Brexit out of the way, and then we can do these things. With Labour, you're just looking at more today on Brexit, so they won't be able to make these improvements to public services that you want. If that goes as as, as Henry uh, suggests might happen, it's quite difficult to see what that distinguishing factor is. I mean, it might be economic competence. You know, the Conservatives can say, well, you know, look with us, you'll only get these improvements to public services because of our approach to the economy. But, you know, with spending going up and everything else, perhaps that line is also being blunted. So it's it's hard to see what that distinguishing factor becomes. And also, you just made me think that another problem could be that if Brexit is delivered, then the um, the split in the opposition maybe also changes. All those people who um, might switch from Labour to the Lib Dems because they're, you know, Remainers might decide, well, Brexit's now done, I'll go back to back to Labour and you, you kind of unite the main opposition party. And there's actually a really important strategic question that Lib Dems and Labour would have to grapple with there, which is, uh, do you become the party of rejoin? For Labour, I think almost certainly not. For the Liberal Democrats, possibly, but they risk losing some voters who might be ardent Remainers now. But if the UK has left the EU, think, mm, that's a bit far, we don't want the Euro. Uh, and, you know, if you're Labour, you might say, okay, well, elect us and we'll, I mean, you'd still be in the trade negotiations phase, we'll negotiate as close a possible relationship with the EU from outside, which might then appeal to some more levers than the current referendum position does. So having promised to explain what's going on in the polls, I think we've concluded that almost anything could happen and it all depends on what happens probably in the next 10 days. So we'll have to wait and see. Let's turn our attention, because we probably don't do it enough when we're obsessed with what's happening in Westminster. Let's turn attention to more matters of life and death and what is happening in Syria. This is Lucy Fisher. The West has committed the ultimate betrayal in Syria, abandoning the Kurds to face an onslaught from Turkey at the whim of Donald Trump. How long can Britain stay in step with the dizzying vacillations of the US president or tolerate the escalating aggression of its supposed ally and NATO partner, Ankara? So let's just explain for people who maybe haven't been following this this closely. Why is it? Because there's always sort of slight sense of Syria's going on in the background. Mm -hmm. What has happened that has sort of escalated it again? What was it that Donald Trump did? Well, I think most people thought that the Syrian kind of war was was in the end phase. It was all but over. You know, the UN peace-led process was sort of taking effect and the talk was about rebuilding Syria, who pays for it and, and who sort of um, takes lead of that. The thinking behind Donald Trump's extraordinary move um, when uh, he told uh, President Erdogan in a, in a phone call that he would withdraw US troops from northern Syria, thereby clearing the path for Turkey to um, get on with a long-threatened onslaught. It's unclear to any foreign policy analysts exactly what sort of advantage he hoped to gain. And indeed, he has since you know, reversed his position, 
threatening and, and levying sanctions on Turkey hasn't yet even withdrawn the, the US troops he said he would. Part of the problem with this story is it's quite complicated, but it also, even when you do understand, it doesn't make any sense. That's right. The, <laughs> Donald Trump decided he was going to take the American troops out of the basically the Turkey-Syria border. Yeah, so I think part of it is, obviously, he's under pressure domestically, so it's, it's trying to change the topic from lots of talks about his tax returns, what's going on with potentially um, his dealings with, with Ukraine uh, and, and the proceedings um, towards an impeachment. I think secondly, you know, looking towards... So just his, announcing, I'm bringing some I'm troops bringing some home, troops goes, home. Ha- goes down he well. changes the narrative. He has you know, to find some troops to bring home. He has to home, find some troops to bring and they home. Was, they were the ones. And of course, this was um, a pledge in his first presidential election campaign to withdraw the US from these foreign wars funded by US taxpayer dollars. So um, I think that was that was part of the thinking. But of course, this is an incredibly febrile um, region. It's a, it's a very sort of volatile situation. And um, as well as the geopolitics and Russia swooping in now um, very cannily to kind of back the Kurds um, with the Assad regime, um, there's the question of what happens to all the ISIS prisoners um, who are in these camps and their jihadist brides uh, and whether they will still be guarded by the Kurds and or, or they'll flee and potentially seek to regroup and plan attacks on the West. Henry, we had a piece by David Miliband on Tuesday morning in Red Box, basically saying there was a time when Britain would have been at the forefront of dealing with this, and partly through distraction and partly because he opposed Brexit, but he said you know, that has diminished Britain's role on the stage as well. Britain just doesn't seem to be a part of this story in the way that it wouldn't have been that long ago. Clearly, Brexit distraction is is a factor here, as it has been in so many other areas of policy, both domestic and international. Uh, I think there's an element of disinclination as well to get involved in the world stage, certainly a post-Iraq uh, hangover, which you saw you know, in the case of the Syrian conflict, uh, most pointedly when uh, David Cameron uh, tried to get the House of Commons to uh, vote to support action in Syria uh, and uh, the Labour Party under Ed Miliband opposed it, even though David Cameron had offered Ed Miliband guarantees, which he thought were in exchange for the Labour Party eventually supporting it. Uh, and I think... Uh, there is a trend of isolationism in uh, British public opinion in particular, and James will have uh, greater insight on that, I'm sure, which has uh, you know, affected uh, British uh, politicians' decisions as well. I think uh, in David Cameron's autobiography, he talks about a Tory MP, I'm pretty sure it's David Amos, saying to him, look, I'm voting against action in Syria, not because of Syria, but because of Iraq, because I voted for it. And afterwards, I told myself I would never make that same mistake again. And I'm honouring that pledge to myself. Uh, now, one interesting thing, should he survive as prime minister long enough on the other side of Brexit, is I'm not totally clear what Boris Johnson's foreign policy tendencies are. Clearly, he has a sort of Atlanticist leaning. But that was true when America was uh, interventionist. You know, does it hold true when Donald Trump under Donald Trump's isolationism, I don't know, uh, or, or sort of relative isolationism. Um, I mean, worth noting, Boris Johnson was one of very, very few Conservative MPs uh, to uh, support an attempt to impeach Tony Blair over Iraq, led by uh, Plaid Cymru. And, uh, He's less keen on impeaching Prime Ministers now. Uh, funnily enough. <laughs> but, but, but it, I mean, one of the important, th- one of the most interesting things about Boris Johnson should he make it on the other side, is we don't really know. He's such a political chameleon at the moment, but purely because, as James just set out, he's constructed a sort of set of political kind of dispositions to confront the sort of particular Brexit situation the UK is in at the moment. But should he make it to the other side with some sort of functioning majority? 
you know, what, what does he actually think about all sorts of things, particularly foreign policy? And James, is Henry right that basically the public mood now is to not get involved in these things? So there's no political pressure. You could argue whether there's a, you know, there's a moral pressure or there's a global uh, political pressure. But if, if voters aren't saying we must do something, then po- politicians are inclined not to do it. So certainly foreign affairs is, is pretty low down the public's uh, public sort of priorities. And there has, Henry's right, you know, there has been a trend over the last sort of, you know, 15 years since, since the Iraq war um, towards uh, not intervening rather than doing so. But I would add one caveat to that, which is that intervention in foreign affairs is one of these areas where actually the public are more persuadable than a lot of people think. So if you think back to last year in April, um, when um, Theresa May uh, sanctioned strikes on on, um, on uh, in Syria uh, on uh, after the um, chemical weapons attack um, by, by, by Assad. Um, before that, on the Wednesday, um, there were 22% of people in support of, um, of, uh, of missile strikes um, uh, amongst the public, um, you know, almost twice as many against. By the Sunday after the attack had taken place, that was up to 35% and it was pretty much dead even. So the public can be led on that. And I remember doing a focus group, actually. I think it was in Canterbury the day the, the day after the strikes. Um, and it was such a different uh, mood to the one a week previously. And everybody was like, oh, it actually shows she's quite strong that she's gone and done it without without a vote. That's so literally the definition of leadership, that sometimes you have to lead public opinion yeah. in the direction of what you think is the right thing to do. And this intervention space seems to be a place where that is more malleable. It's the same in the US. If you look at uh, Republicans' views on foreign affairs, uh, when they have a Republican president who is pretty pro-intervention, actually Republicans are very supportive of intervention. Now, because of uh, Donald Trump, they are pretty resolutely against it. So it is an area where you know people, politicians can lead opinion uh, more than perhaps uh, they might be able to in other areas. I absolutely agree that it, it, politicians can craft a narrative. I think the British public has a very strong sense of, of kind of fairness and what's kind of you know just not cricket. And I think abandoning the Kurds in the way that we are. Um, is a move that could have been opposed. But the reality is the UK is totally in hock to the US for its foreign policy. And the rot set in actually um, long before Trump. It was um, Obama uh, who was just incredibly confused in his foreign policy about Syria. He sent the US in to, to, to the northeast of Syria to kind of ally with the Kurds. But he was very careful not to make any commitments um, about making long-term partnership with the YPG, knowing that that would anger Turkey. But that left a sort of confusion about what what would happen in the long-term space. Equally, Obama set down these red lines if the Assad regime used um, chemical weapons against his people. He did that, and then Obama refused to follow through. And I think that that will long be be seen as a key point in which the the West kind of threats to kind of police the the rest of the world weren't worth the paper they're written on. I, I think I think Henry's point about the about that the importance of that Syria vote in in the UK Parliament. I think that will be looked at looked back at as one of the most important parliamentary votes because that then meant meant that Obama didn't take it to didn't take it to Congress and it sort of created that dominoes effect. You know, an incredibly incredibly significant vote uh, that that sort of has still still is having ramifications today. Well, let's move on. I, I fear we'll have to come back to Syria sooner rather than later because we'll see how it all plays out. After the break, we will talk about what on earth is going on inside the Labour Party. We'll be back after these adverts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jordan. I'm joining the studio by James Johnson, Lucy Fisher, and this is Henry Zeffman. What's John McDonnell up to? That's the question gripping Labour MPs. While talk of a silent coup is a bit overblown, it is clear the Shadow Chancellor is increasingly dominant, with important consequences for Labour's Brexit strategy and much else besides. Uh, Henry, one of the things that really struck me watching the Queen's speech debate, I mean, there weren't many things, because it was, pr- <laughs> as uh, it was rhetoric dire. goes, it was pretty dire. However, um, Boris Johnson is developing an obsession with John McDonnell, which rivaled, I think, uh, David Cameron and Ed Miliband. Quite a lot of his attacks and throwaway remarks across the dispatch box weren't aimed at Jeremy Corbyn. They were aimed at John McDonnell, describing him, likening him to a Transylvanian at one point, his icy grip on the party, a slightly confused historical reference to Lenin, uh, which didn't quite bear out much scrutiny. But why is that? Why is what? Because John McDonnell is one of those figures who, whose reputation has changed quite a bit. Certainly, John McDonnell has, uh, I think, more than any of the other formerly fringe figures who have been brought to the heart of British politics under the Jeremy Corbyn leadership. More than any of them, I think he has shown a phenomenal political ability, actually, uh, both public facing and internal. Public facing because he sort of recast himself as a a uh, sort of comforting provincial bank manager with the red sweaters <laughs> and the sort of suburban uh, West London house from which he always does his uh, Sky interviews the chins, on Sunday the cur- morning. The chintzy curtains exactly. are proper sort of Michael Heseltine-esque. Yeah. yeah, and then, although I suspect his house is less grand than Michael Heseltine's, which has an enormous bust of Lenin, as it happens, I think, in the garden. Um, <laughs> but um, And then internally, John McDonnell is winning a series of fights over what Labour policy should be and how the Labour Party should be managed now. The really noticeable one to Westminster watchers last week was when Carrie Murphy, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, chief of staff, was moved or seconded, as the official terminology has it, uh, to Labour Party headquarters in a uh, general election campaigning role. Uh, Now, I'm sure that role will be important, but it can't be as important as supervising Jeremy Corbyn's ever-expanding cast of staff in a building in Parliament who effectively dictate how Jeremy Corbyn operates and the directions in which he takes the Labour Party. Now, why did I say this is important for Brexit? John McDonnell got to a position of backing a second referendum earlier than Jeremy Corbyn. In fact, those sort of Sunday show appearances by John McDonnell, which I referenced, have always been really quite interesting because quite often he will say something which is just a little bit further than where Labour Party policy is. And Labour Party sources will come out and say, oh, I don't think that's quite party policy. But wait a few weeks and wait a few months and it almost always is. Now, John McDonnell 
interestingly, has started to suggest that he might be willing to back a referendum before a general election. Now, Labour Party policy at the moment is that there should be a general election you know, before the UK has left the EU. And then after that general election, should Labour be in government, they will negotiate a new Brexit deal, what they call a sensible Brexit deal, within three months and then hold a referendum on that versus remain in six months. John McDonnell has now joined Tom Watson in suggesting that he might be willing to countenance a referendum held under a Conservative government. That means that it would be a referendum between either Theresa May's deal or some new deal struck by Boris Johnson and Remain. That would effectively turn Labour into a fully-fledged party of Remain because obviously they would oppose the Conservative deal. Uh, And that's something that Jeremy Corbyn and some of his allies have been very opposed to. Lucy, if anyone's listening to this thinking, it's all very interesting, all these people squabbling over hypotheticals, why does any of this matter? Why does why does the inner workings of the Labour Party and John McDonnell's influence matter? It matters because it's uh, Her Majesty's opposition. Um, they are the party that should be holding the Conservatives to account in their sort of as their function uh, as the main opposition party. There has been the sense that the real leader, you know, the the official leader, Jeremy Corbyn. It has not really been making most of the policy decisions. I think there's sort of two schools of thought, one of which is that um, John McDonnell has been the sort of Geppetto character, um, <laughs> the puppeteer running the show. And the other is that there are even sort of lesser known shadowy figures. You know, Henry mentioned, I think, Carrie Murphy, Seamus Milne and the like, the, these, un- these unelected um, officials who, uh, who who are making all the key decisions. And I think that many people rightly note that there hasn't been the level of scrutiny of the government holding it to account, really digging into its policy positions, what it's saying day to day, what it's doing, um, as there has been in the past. I think partially that's because the Corbyn sort of administration of Labour is so much further to the left than the predecessor and Ed Miliband that there's a huge turnover in staff and a lot of the expertise and day-to-day um, running uh, knowledge and experience w- was lost. So you've had people, and many of them incredibly young and inexperienced, you know, smart people, but they've had to get to grips and relearn the ropes. And that's why lab- Labour's been behind and that's why, why it matters. There's also I suppose, the slight sense that there's only so much space in the news bulletins or in the newspapers. If the Labour story is either the leader being accused of being an anti-Semite or a secret supporter of leave or internal rows over staffing or whatever, you know, the straightforward Labour policy announcement or attack on the government gets less um, coverage, maybe. James, to what extent, I mean, we love all this. To what extent do people know who John McDonnell is? John McDonnell is an interesting one. Um, when I was at number 10, John McDonnell was the person uh, I was sort of... Uh, most, I um, uh, <laughs> can't quite use the word scared, but <laughs> the person I was most wary of. Um, he was very plugged into the, into the Labour Party's polling and still is. And we would test potential Labour leaders all the time, you know, if, uh, especially if, uh, along with these rumours that Corbyn might resign or, 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 you know, move on at some point. And John McDonnell was the one that always tested best, actually, because people looked at him and they watched video clips or whatever else we showed them and they thought he's competent and um, he's got this kind of bank manager vibe. Um, he knows what he's doing, he's on top of his brief. The hard left stuff, you know, the sort of um, and you know, potential li- links in his past and so on that people sort of get concerned about actually aren't the reason people don't like Corbyn. You know, they don't like Corbyn because they think he's a bit useless. John McDonnell is sort of brings all of the sort of, you know, radicalism that people like about uh, the current Labour Party, um, and but also sort of Im- imbibes it with some competence as well. So I, I don't think, I mean, I think John McDonald's made it pretty clear he's not going to go for the leadership himself. But uh, actually, um, you know, in terms of who tests best with the public as a potential le- Labour leader, it is, it is, it is John McDonald. Which is interesting. And in the event that Jeremy Corbyn stood down, you can't rule out the possibility. Lots of people in the past have said, oh, no, not me, possibly, you know, 
um, I couldn't possibly do that, only to find themselves reluctantly dragged from the plough or whatever it was that Boris Johnson described it as. Henry, how do you think this all plays out? Well, I think the Labour Party is continuing its uh, steady inch towards becoming a Remainer party. The question is just whether, in a general election, too many Remain voters uh, believe that the Labour Party took too long to get there and therefore sort of vote Lib Dem to admonish them for that. The the reason that the Carrie Murphy move, I should have said earlier, was so significant was because she was one of the key figures in Jeremy Corbyn's office saying, I don't think we should back a second referendum. I think we should, you know, continue to do what we did in 2017, which was say that we will deliver a sensible Brexit. Other key figures around Jeremy Corbyn uh, who are of that view uh, include Ian Lavery, the party chairman who's also running the general election campaign, uh, John Trickett, uh, and then also, I think we're told, Seamus Milne, who's his communications chief, has been quite anti the move towards a referendum, uh, although clearly he's on board now, and also Andrew Murray, who I think actually did vote leave. He's an, another sort of uh, behind-the-scenes advisor. Uh, but, but Jeremy Corbyn will never, I think, seem totally comfortable espousing sort of fully-fledged Remainerness. Uh, he certainly didn't in 2016. Well, well, I mean, that's this important point, is that whether he has... I mean, his, his great selling point is his evident uh, refusal to budge from positions he's held for, for many years, many decades, in fact. You know, he, he, he does whatever people think of those views, have views which he holds to. And, and I wonder whether a sort of palpably electioneering switch to being a sort of proper Remainer would, would damage that brand more generally. Which is fine, and then we uh, wrap up. I think we asked the same question last week, so we'll ask again now. When do we think the election's going to be? Go on, James, you must know. You must have polled every possible... Well, I heard the other day that um, apparently uh, local councils are already booking up town halls for November 28th, just uh, just in case it's it's that date, which is, I think, the sort of earliest uh, conceivable date it can be if, if, if there's a motion sort of this, this month. I think increasingly, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, um, and, you know, this is uh, not a prediction, but I'm wondering increasingly whether actually, you know, this election is, is delayed again and, uh, you know, whether we end up in a case where, you know, we need they need a bit more time to get a deal or, or, um, or even if, uh, you know, we come out and the poll ratings collapse if the Brexit party gets you know becomes resurgent and number 10 think actually we could do with a bit more time i do wonder whether we might start to see this pushing into into spring rather than rather than in the next month and how bad would a christmas election be Oh, that would be pretty bleak, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> although it's arguably better to have it before Christmas because then it's dumb and you don't have to spend Christmas worrying about it. Yeah. Henry, what do you think? I mean, I have no idea, but I think the chances of a pre-2020 election are diminishing pretty quickly. You know, the, the longer that Boris Johnson looks close to getting a deal, whether he gets it or not, I think the, the less likely it becomes. So let's say mid-February. Lucy? I'd say December, partly for the reasons that James outlined, that the, the problem is once you, you know, voters don't reward you for what you've delivered. So if, you, if he's still in the process of delivering it, sort of, it's a confirmatory mandate that he has to kind of follow through on any kind of deal he gets with Brussels. I don't think I did um, say this on the podcast last week. Um, Angela Ledson told me it's going to be on January the 10th. Shook hands on it. Bet me £5, even though I didn't. But I think it's a Friday. There's no evidence to back up this. Um... Well, that, that really is a Christmas ruiner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure she totally thought that through. That just sounded a bit like out knocking on people's doors on Christmas Day to me. Uh, which sounds terrible. Uh, but that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. And you can sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox, where you can also find details of how to get tickets to the last few shows of my stand-up tour. The perfect pre-Christmas present is what everyone is saying. Uh, my huge thanks to James, to Henry, and to Lucy. And for me, Matt, Jolly, it's goodbye. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.